I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know if I'll die before it does. I don't know if you will. But one day, the cemeteries are going to be very active. And the people that are inside of those graves are going to come up. They're going to be resurrected. And they will no longer be held in those particular tombs that they're in. And when we think about life, we, we spend so much time thinking about how quickly it goes. You know, I, I feel like I've just blinked a couple of times and I'm married with a child and am close to what some consider to be one of the first milestones that you reach at the age of 30. And then I think I'll blink twice more and I'll be 60 and I'll blink twice more and we'll see what happens. And you think about the idea of the people in this room right now that five years ago, three years ago, two years ago, there were people that were in these pews and sitting in this auditorium and they were a part of the congregation here that are no longer, not because they left the church, but because unfortunately they've left the world. They've passed away. They've gone on to their reward. They've left this life. And we've experienced the sorrow and heartache as a result of that, when it's our own families especially. We struggle with the idea of death. We know the resurrection. As Christians especially, you know the resurrection. And you know what the resurrection is, but it's hard to remember that when we're looking at the loved one in the casket or we're at the tombstone of our loved one and all we're really seeing is what was, not what one day will be again. And so today we're going to talk about the resurrection and I want to start with focusing on facts about the resurrection. In the first place, I think it's important to point out, like we said, there is going to be one. There will be a day where the resurrection will happen and I appreciate Brother Nathan leading some songs in this service about the resurrection because in the first place this morning... Christ is the resurrection. What man or woman in the Bible ever rose themselves from the dead? We'll talk in the second point about some examples of resurrection that are recorded in Scripture. And every one of those examples, somebody had to say for that individual to come back to life. There's only one individual that I know that has ever lived on this earth that was able to raise themselves from the dead. And that's Jesus Christ. If you'll begin with me in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, the Bible says he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And Martha in John eleven twenty four through 25 said to Jesus, I know that he, speaking of Lazarus, will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And so we know that Jesus is the resurrection. The reason there's going to be a resurrection someday is because the Son of God will call us back. He will return and we will all that have died be risen and we will go on to our eternal reward or punishment. He's not just raising himself up because he's raising us up also. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul wrote to the church there at Corinth, in Adam, as in Adam, all die. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. In 1 Peter 1, 3, and then chapter 3, 21, we're told, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the what? Resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 21 of chapter 3 says, There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6.14 and 2 Corinthians 4.14 tells us in the first place, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. And chapter 4.14 of 2 Corinthians says, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. We don't die, and that's the end of our story. That's not what happens. That's not how it goes. The Hollywood world right now is very involved in sequels and in continuation of stories that have been told. I was at the movies with Megan and Adam on Friday... And I was walking out and I saw a, a movie poster for a movie called Spirit. And I think it's called Spirit Return. And when I saw it, I did a double take because I'll just, I'll just level with you. When I was growing up, there was a movie called Spirit. This is a sequel to that movie. I did not like that movie. It was one of the most boring movies as a child I ever watched. I just did not enjoy it. And so when I saw it, I thought, they're going to bring that movie back into theaters and play the, the original and I got closer and I thought, it's a sequel? I don't want to go see that either. And I'm thinking that the Hollywood left and right, sequel after sequel, continuation after continuation, they're all obsessed with it. Disney especially has been obsessed with bringing back things. Whether it's a show about the Mighty Ducks or a show about High School Musical or a continuation of this movie or that movie, the world is obsessed right now with continuing stories that when we first saw them we thought were closed. We thought they were done. The life of a human being seems like that when we leave a funeral home or we leave the graveside service and we go back to our regular lives. We think of it as the close of a story, perhaps, and really it's just the close of that chapter because of what we know the Bible teaches. There's a sequel. The sequel is we're going to rise again. You know the famous line from Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back, has been for years said in joking fashions throughout TVs and movies. And in truth, that's the reality of the life of a Christian. We'll be back. We don't stay where we go. We'll be back. We'll rise again. We'll go and meet Jesus in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Don't have to worry ever again. He will raise us up also. But the next question that people might ask, and I understand why, is when will it happen? And I mentioned this at the beginning of the sermon, but I don't know when it will happen as far as the actual time, but I know when it will happen as far as the actual event. The resurrection will happen at the judgment day. The resurrection happens on the judgment day. Christ, the one that we talked about a few moments ago, who's risen from the dead, and all of us one day are going to rise as well, and that's according to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28, that we will one day be risen up as well. 
But Jesus is the one that's going to raise us from the dead, John 6, 39 through 44. And we'll be fit with a new body. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The day that the trump sounds, and we know from other passages in the New Testament, that's the judgment day, is the day that we will be resurrected if we have died, fit for a new body. But the resurrection happens with no warning. My mom and dad used to, years ago, would tell us, we're going out for an evening, we're going to go to dinner and a movie, and you kids have to clean the house while we're gone. That's what we want you to do while we're gone. And I've mentioned this to you before, but I don't expect that you remember everything I've ever told you. But I was usually the lookout. You know what that means, right? I would stand by the window of our house and I'd watch. We had a long driveway. And I'd watch the edge of that driveway. And the moment I saw lights turn in, I would sound the alarm. Mom and dad are home. Y'all better get to cleaning because in 35 seconds we can totally clean the whole house. That was always our thought process, I guess. And there were times where someone would pull into our driveway to back out and go the other way. And I'd say, they're here. And it wouldn't be them. And I'd sound the alarm prematurely and we would try to rustle through the house and hurry through and get everything cleaned up. But in truth, that wasn't my mom and dad. It was a false alarm. Are we going to have false alarms with the resurrection and with the judgment day? Are we going to sit there and go, oh, false alarm. We thought he was coming back, but it's, it's not real. You know, we actually do have those, though, because there have been people who have tried to predict the second coming of Jesus, and they have said, Jesus is coming back, 2020. These are signs of the times. Look at everything that's going on. This is proof positive. Jesus is coming back in 2020. What year is it? It's 2021, right? But you know there are people out there that will say the same thing. Well, we miscalculated, but 2021, nothing's getting any better. These are signs of the times. And I really believe the worst thing that people can do in predicting the resurrection is to continue to try to guess because God's going to say, well, it won't be that year. So sure, y'all keep guessing. I'd like to live a little bit longer on the earth and experience life with my family. Sure, keep guessing as many years as you want. It's not going to happen. No man knows when the resurrection is coming. We might try. We might guess, but we've not been given any signs. The resurrection happens with no warning. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, where the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But we're told the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. A couple of weeks ago, or maybe a month or two ago now, I think I told you all this as well, but I can't remember if it was a class or a sermon, but I was laying in bed, I woke up to the sound of the alarm going off. And what happens a lot in our house is we forget the alarm is on and we open the back door to let the dog out and the alarm goes off. And so I texted the group chat with all of us and I said, did y'all set the alarm off? And I got the sobering and very quickly wakening up text of that wasn't us oh well who's in my house 
What had happened was my dog had evidently hit his head on the window just hard enough to set the motion sensor off. And so the alarm was going on. But I thought someone was in our house. And so I made my way throughout the house carefully with the phone ready in hand to call if I needed to. And no one was there. You ever woken up at night and thought you heard somebody in your house? Maybe you had somebody in your house. Uh, we had the privilege of talking to Steve Higginbotham recently, a buddy of mine, and he told us that one time they were robbed at gunpoint. And he thought that it was his friend playing a prank on him, and so he was playing hard to get with this robber and acting like he wasn't actually there to take his money. And his friend was the only reason they didn't get shot, he said, because his friend started to pull his wallet out and said, no, no, you take it, sir. You take whatever you want. You go on. We're, we're good. We're fine. And then the realization hit Steve, he said, and he goes, oh, he's serious. He's really got a loaded weapon. He's not playing some prank. But thieves don't tell you when they're going to rob you. If that thief had called Steve ahead of time and said, hey, this afternoon around 530, when you're walking down this street, I'm going to be there waiting on you with a gun, and I'm going, to ask, I'm going to actually demand that you give me your money. So I just want you to be prepared for that. What do you think Steve's going to do? I guess I know what street I'm not going down at 5.30 this afternoon. Thieves don't give you fair warning. And God equates the idea of a thief looking at a house to break in and steal from you who won't tell you that they're coming and saying that's how you should treat the day of the Lord. You should treat it as you don't know when it's going to happen. It could be five minutes from now. It could be 5,000 years from now. It could be a millennia from now. I don't know. I don't know who's coming. And God tells us to be ready. First Thessalonians 5, 2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Be ready. But when we ask the question of who gets to experience it, we're told that both the righteous and unrighteous will be raised. All dead people, all of those who have passed away, will rise. And will be fit for a new body. And we'll give an account of our lives. In Romans 14, verses 10 through 12, Brian alluded to Romans 14 in his lesson. And we have in Romans 14, 10 through 12, where Paul says, Why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. I've heard this before, and I'm sure you have too, where the statement's been made that if God has to break kneecaps, they will bow. You can't defy the Lord on the judgment day. You will bow. You will confess. And then you will give an account of what you've done. Every now and then, when we do something that's wrong, I mentioned this in the Bible class, you get pulled over by a police officer, and he comes up to the window and says, do you have any idea why I pulled you over? We know, typically, the best thing to say is nothing. No, officer, why did you pull me over? Why don't you enlighten me? I'm not going to fess up to something that maybe you didn't pull me over for. And we let the officer tell us what we've done that's wrong. But in that moment, we're giving an account of what we did. The officer's telling us, I pulled you over for speeding. I pulled you over. You blew right past that stop sign. Hey, sir, I pulled you over because your, your tags are expired. By several months, that happened to me once. 
I had made my way home, and the police officer pulled me over, and I said, Officer, I, I wasn't speeding. I don't, I don't think I was doing anything else wrong. And he said, Well, I normally would let this kind of thing slide, but it, sir, sir, it's May. Your tag's expired in October. I said, Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay, I, I understand why you pulled me over now. And when I went to court, I had to give an account of why I was there. Your Honor, I'm here because here's, here's the ticket, here's the information, here's what's going on. What do I need to do to correct this? How do I fix it? And then that judge rendered judgment on me. Unfortunately, he was nice enough to say, I don't know the last time that I've left and checked the back of my, t my tags to see if they were up to date or not. I do now. I didn't do that before. But I do almost every time. I know July 2021 is when I got to go and get those things replaced on my truck. But I look at it every day just to be sure. Because I'm not getting pulled over again. But I didn't do that up until this point. And the judge was saying he felt the same way. He said, I can't remember the last time I've gone and looked at the back of my tags. Sir, have you gotten your tags renewed? Yes, sir, I have proof of that right here. All right, you go on home, man. Just don't let this happen again. He could have decided to give me a fine because I did break the law. I mean, the law says I have to have those tags renewed by the date that's there. I didn't do it, and it was months. This wasn't the week after the month that I had to get it done. This was months after. But I had to go and give an account of what I had done, and so will we. When we're resurrected, we will go before the Father, and we will give an account of our lives. But when we look at the examples of resurrection and we start in the Old Testament, there's the widow's son in Zarephath. In 1 Kings 17, 17 through 22, where the Bible says it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. And so she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. He took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times, cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. We know and we can see pretty clearly Two verses say this, that his breath left him. There's no breath in him anymore. Breathed his last. And then that Elijah says, let his soul come back into him. And the Bible says in verse 22, the Lord heard the voice of, the, of Elijah and the soul of the child came back. Let me point this out though because this is something that's interesting. Every occurrence of, a re of, a, of resurrection that we found throughout the scriptures has been this. Not been dead too long. And if you've been dead fairly long, like in the case of Lazarus, well, he started to decompose by now, but we don't find the idea of a complete and total destruction of the human body that once was, and then it being completely put back together. The ones that I found, at least. Maybe you know of one and you can enlighten me. This son who had died had not been dead for a long period of time. All that needed to happen was his soul needed to come back into his body. And he was brought back to life. What about the people that died in the 1800s? 
that were buried? What about the people that died as like the apostles? What about the people that died? I mean, how do we talk about people that long ago who died? Are their bodies still intact? Mm-mm. They've been dead too long. The body's decayed, it's decomposed, it's gone from what it once was. So when we talk about the resurrection at the judgment day, we're talking about a complete restoration even. That a body would be brought back. And real quick, it's not, it's not in my lesson, but I've been asked this question before and I think this is a good time to mention it. That's really the reason why I don't believe cremation is sinful. Because God's going to bring bodies back anyway. And the God that made you, the God that created the ability to have human life, is not going to say, man, y'all got me with cremation. I don't know how to put that body back together. If only you hadn't cremated this individual, I could have resurrected them. That's not what God's going to say. But you think of the power of God, that people that have been dead for hundreds of years even, some thousands of years, can be brought back to a body and then their body will be changed for a body fit for eternity. That's impressive. Because the widow's son, he hadn't been dead that long. The Shunammite's son had not been dead that long. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, and the Shunammite's son was one we talked about in the Wednesday afternoon class where this widow, or the Shunammite's son, I should say, he had died. He was lying dead on his bed. And he went in therefore and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. What do people say when a body has been dead for a few hours or long enough time? They say, it's cold. They're not warm anymore. They've, they've lost their body temperature. Well, the child came back to life. And he returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. After 2020, nobody likes to sneeze anymore. You know, uh, That's become a, a, the cardinal sin, really, is to sneeze. And if you see somebody sneeze, you give them a dirty look now. I don't think there was ever a time where a mother was more happy that her child sneezed seven times than in that moment. That that child was back. Sneeze all you want. I don't care. My child's alive again. That's fine by me. And to think about the fact that in both of these instances in the Old Testament, while it was Elijah and Elisha that were involved in doing it, who ultimately was the reason the child came back? In both instances, it was God. But in the New Testament, we have God on earth. We have Jesus in the flesh, 100% man, 100% God. And the first one that really comes to all of our minds is the one we mentioned a few moments ago, and that's Lazarus. Lazarus is an individual who had died. And Jesus comes to see the state of Lazarus' tomb. And in verse 38, it says he was groaning in himself. And he came to the tomb. There was a stone laying against a cave. And Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha, who was his sister, said to him, Lord, Lord, by this time, he's been dead for four days. There's, 
there's going to be a stench. He's been dead for a few days now. He's, he's starting the process of decom decomposing, and he, uh, he's going to stink when you roll that stone back. You ever had to clean your fridge out, and you threw some food away, and then it was unfortunately a hot day in your garbage can outside, and you go to open the can the next time to put another bag in, and you almost get knocked out by the smell? You ever had an, an experience like that where something like that happened? You go, oh, man. And you know what you do? You carry the can down to the street right then. You don't wait anymore. Because if it's going to smell, it's going to smell down there, not up here. And then maybe you try to clean that thing out with something, pressure wash it or whatever else you can do to get the smell out when it's done and been emptied. Or if you know you got more trash to bring out, well, you throw it in and throw the can down and you go back in the house. The idea of, of something that doesn't smell pleasant to us is not an exciting thing. And we talk about the smell of a, of a human body that's decomposing and is going through that process. It doesn't smell good. And Martha says, it's not going to smell pleasant. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? They took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who were standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Years ago, I heard for the first time, and we've mentioned this before, and you've heard it from other preachers, but famous preacher once said, the reason he said Lazarus come forth is because if he just said come forth, everybody in the cemetery would have gotten up. But you know, that's actually biblical because what are we told is going to happen on the judgment day? Jesus is coming back and what will happen? Everybody will raise up. Everybody comes back. So Jesus is awful specific here. Lazarus come forth. And he does. Lazarus came forth Bound hand and foot with grave clothes, his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said, loose him and let him go. But the chief example of resurrection has to be Jesus. When we talk about the resurrection, and Jesus is the resurrection, he is the one that will bring us back from the dead. Jesus himself in Matthew 28, verses 1 through 6, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was Beginning to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance, his face was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, he's risen. He's not here, he's risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Perhaps you've come by the church office sometime looking for Ryan or looking for me and we don't happen to be in at the time that you show up. And you say, can I see Michael or Ryan? Are they here? You go by our office and you knock and there's no answer. We're not there. You can't find us there. But in the case of Jesus... He should have been there. This wasn't an office that he was keeping office hours at. This was his tomb. He should be there. 
No man has ever risen themselves from the dead until Christ. He is not here. He is risen. And then he says, come and see the place where the Lord lay. You know, the easiest way to have destroyed Christianity is to have taken Jesus' body and throw it in a wheelbarrow and march it down the streets and show people, here's the Savior, your supposed Savior, here He is, He's dead. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they show proof of Jesus not having risen from the dead? Because there was no proof of Him still being dead. He was gone. He wasn't in the tomb anymore. And if he's not in the tomb, and some people have said, well, the apostles took him. Okay, the apostles then were very convicted for a lie. Because how many of the apostles died and were martyred for what they taught and they believed? A great deal of them. Would you die for a lie? That's a hard thing for me to believe. The apostles had miraculous abilities and powers. Would God give that to people who were liars? No, he rose. He's alive. And as we think about how this affects us today, we know Jesus is coming back for a purpose. He's coming back for his faithful followers. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. He's coming back to execute judgment on the whole world. Jude 1, 15, 2 Timothy 4, 4, 1, Matthew 25, 31 through 34 or 35. He's coming back to deliver the kingdom to the Father. We sometimes sing the songs and it's not, it's not that Nathan or anybody else that leads these songs are in sin when they do this, but it's the writers of the songs that mess this up. I find it interesting, we, we sang in the song before, and he'll live forever with his saints to reign. But unfortunately, the scriptures teach against that. I've seen other people who have taken that and they've changed it to, he lives forever, death he overcame. Because that's what happened and that's the biblical idea of it. But Jesus is going to give the kingdom to the Father on the judgment day. He gives up his reign when he goes through the process of the judgment day. He's no longer going to be reigning anymore. But like I mentioned, it's not like if I see that song being sung or if we don't change the words or anything that I'm going to go to Nathan and say, you know, you need to go to the front row and repent. That's a writer's problem, not the song leader's problem. But when we read songs, when we read about the scriptures, we need to make sure that we understand Jesus is not going to reign forever. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to show this to you, verses 24 through 28. The Bible says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. I could stop right there because that would really settle it. If I deliver something to you, it's no longer mine, is it? Someone comes and brings me a package, right? It was on their truck. But once they deliver it to me, who owns it now? I do. It's in my possession. And when Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, we're told in verse 25 that he must reign until. That until means there comes an end of his reign. For example, with our government in our country, you get four years, maybe eight, maybe, if you can get reelected, if you want to serve as president. 
You get elected one. You're guaranteed four, potentially, as long as you don't get impeached or anything like that. You get four years to reign as president, and if you get reelected, you get another four. After that eight is over, guess what? It doesn't matter if you were the greatest president in the history of mankind. It doesn't matter if you could just stop all of everything else. Your term is over. Sorry. That's unfortunate. But that's the law. The law says you can serve up to two terms. That's it. And that, that trickles down even into local government, even into the advisory boards of a Parks and Rec in Oakland. I'm serving as a board member. I get one term of four years, and if I do a good job, I get one more term of another four. And after those eight years, I'm done. If I want to continue to serve the city of Oakland, I need to jump to a new board. Now, does that seem fair? No, I don't like the idea that I'll be you know, barely pushing 36 or 35 or whatever, and I've got to give it up. I love Parks and Rec. I love being involved in the sports. But that's the way the law is written right now. So when we read words like, until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that is to be destroyed is death, we're told Jesus' reign comes to an end. He'll give it to the Father. In verses 27 and 28, it says, He's put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him... It is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. He's coming back and he'll deliver the kingdom to the Father. And no matter our status with God, we will be changed at the resurrection. You, you think about that for a minute. No matter our status with God, we'll be changed at the resurrection. We'll all be changed into a new body. A body fit for eternity. I agree with Ryan. I don't know how he got the sports sermon and I didn't. The one chapter in all of the New Testament really that talks about sports at length like that, well, it's because he drafted it. So it's his fault. He took that one and I didn't get a chance to draft it. But he talked about that idea of shadow boxing. What does that profit somebody to just beat the air? Congratulations, you've done nothing. I mean, maybe you've worked a little bit on your, on your stamina and other things, but just hitting the air doesn't really do anything, especially like he mentioned, in a fight. You're not going to win a fight if you're just hitting the air. I saw a clip on ESPN of a man who had a dumbbell, and he tied it to a rope, and he let that rope swing like a pendulum, and he started to dodge it blindfolded. Let that sink in for a moment. This man, who's a boxer, was dodging a dumbbell as it's swinging towards him from the front and then from the back, and he's dodging it and he's doing a great job, and then it cut to the clip of the fight. And this man who did that training is now being hit left and right, and he's just dodging every punch. Why do you think he could do that? He trained. He practiced. But that practice actually shows a benefit there. But when it comes to actual fighting, when he wanted to connect, he needed to hit him. It doesn't do anything for us if we don't connect. We're going to be changed into a new body, fit for eternity. And notice that fit for eternity, according to 1 Corinthians 15.43 and 15.51, that all, we shall all be changed. Verse 51 means that my body will be fit even if it means I'm going to be in hell for eternity. 
a body fit for eternity. The righteous, we're told, will be like Christ. But the wicked and righteous will also have incorruptible bodies. That's really the most horrible thing about hell. Is also the most wonderful thing about heaven is that you never have to worry about anything ever again, but with the person in hell, they can never get out of that pain. You've all seen and probably done this before too, just out of curiosity, maybe when you were younger. You ever see a candle before and you take your hand and you do the, let's see how close I can get before I'll pull my hand away. And as you get closer and closer, what do you notice? It's hurting more and more. And it gets to the point where you, you pull your hand back quickly. That's just a little flame. But see, when you do that, you can pull away. You can say, I'm done. I'm out. I'm not doing that anymore. Where can you go to avoid the punishment of hell? There's nowhere. In an incorruptible body, which means a body that cannot be destroyed. So are we going to be ready when we die? Ready for the resurrection. You know, when we die, when we cease to exist in this life, and that's what will happen to all man, death will happen to all man, Hebrews 9, 27. The story for us does conclude if we die in a lost or saved state. Our story has been finished Now, while there's still a little bit left that will happen, as we talked about with the resurrection, when the resurrection occurs, there's no scripture in the entire New Testament that says there will be a mass opportunity for everybody to repent and change. We're told we're resurrected, and we're brought right to the Father for judgment. So the only chances that I have to get my life right with God is while I'm living on this earth. Lazarus had that understanding. And the rich man gained that understanding when he said, send Lazarus that he could dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. And we're told there's this great gulf and those from here to there can't pass and those from there to here cannot pass either. You have to stay in your side. Separated. You didn't have to be. You chose to be. When we go to sleep, will we be ready? That's what 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 talks about it as, is a, a sleep. You fall asleep. Tomorrow we're going to have the unfortunate decision of having to take our dog and put him to sleep. And when we do that, the doctor is going to give him a shot and the doctor will watch as the dog does what they call a tennis ball routine where they follow what seems to be a tennis match and then eventually that dog will fall asleep. And it will look like it's just sleeping. And sometimes we've seen human beings that have died and we'll say as we stand in front of the casket they just look like they're asleep. This doesn't seem real. Or your mind will play tricks on you and you'll think that you see them breathing or something because you don't want it to be real. 
And you think, it's just got to be asleep. That's all this has to be. But when we go to sleep, like 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about, the only things that will happen after that for humans, for those that have souls that are bound to be following either the Lord or following Satan to either heaven or eternity in hell, those individuals, the last couple of steps that happen for them is they will be risen, they will be judged, they will be separated to go to where they're fit for eternity. And that's it. And so when you think about your tombstone one day and what's going to be written on it, I don't know what year it'll say. I don't know how many people won't be here this time next year. But I know this much. One day, the people that we've lost, the people that we will lose, and ourselves even, we will be risen. And so it's important, so important to be ready to meet the Lord in the air. And if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, it's time to become one. The Bible gives us the plan. It's to hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. That's all throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament. If you have done those things but you find yourself wandering away from God, it's time to come home. Whatever need you have, we'll pray with you, we'll pray for you, we'll study with you, whatever you need. Please come as together we stand and sing.